Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is June 9th, 2021, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have prayer before we begin. Father, thank you for this time we have together. We are glad to be here. We thank you for those who have joined us, uh, have given us their time and their attention. And Father, we pray that as we approach your throne of grace, that we have humility, uh, that we come looking for wisdom, uh, clarity from the spirit of truth. So we thank you, Father, for this venue where we can come in to express our ideas and, and, and examine yours. All this we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, so, so as we, where we are in Romans chapter 9 is Romans 9, <clears throat> 15 and 16. We're going to, tr we have notes for 15 and 16. Whether we get to both those verses or not uh, remains to be seen, but that is where we are in our study, and hopefully we'll get there tonight. Uh, but we do have some time to see if there is any follow-up uh, about anything or any questions or thoughts. So I will open the floor at this point. All right. Um, I have a general thought, general question. Sure. Go right ahead, Dwight. Discussion, you can put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to one of my favorite books in the Bible, Ephesians. And I just love the references to, um, you know, being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in chapter four in general. Mm -hmm. And I was contemplating um, chap, uh, chapter four, verse 15, which in ESV says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And, uh, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about love as motivation and motivation for what? Um, obviously, uh, God's eternal plan and, and our participation in that. Mm -hmm. um, and I was also remembering um, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, um, the love chapter, some people call it. Right. Um, where, where Paul is saying, if I do all of these other things and do not have love, it doesn't matter. Um, but I was also considering James and the famous, um, or, yeah, I'll say famous, uh, quote near the, the argument that people make about works and faith. Right. And um, so we know with all of the discussions that we've had, we have a very good solid ground in, in, in salvation by grace. We understand that it's by grace. We understand that it's completely the work of God. And we do nothing. We do nothing to earn it, to qualify, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, we just turn from ourselves and accept the gift that he is handing to us for free. Mm -hmm. um, 
So obviously when, when it comes to seeking the unity of the spirit, when it talks about speaking the truth in love, um, even in James, when it's talking about um, work without faith, faith is dead, he's talking to believers. All of this is in regards to people who are saved. Right. And um, but once we are saved, after we are saved, um, we see, you know, so many references to scripture saying that the the unsearchable riches are in knowing Christ. You know, Paul, uh, we talked about last Sunday, I believe it was, that, uh, you know, Paul was comparing his resume and all the things that he accomplished in life, and he considers it dumb. Mm-hmm. You know, to the comparison, you know, comparing it to the value of knowing Christ. Right. Um, but when we see things like um, this little phrase in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, where it says, when each part is working properly, I'm not sure if the um, NIV says, um, but the King James um, has it according to the effectual work in the measure of every part. Um, and then also taking into consideration the context of what James was talking about. So the type of faith, or the type of works, I should say, that uh, James was talking about, was just on a, on a practical basis. He's saying if, if your brother is cold and you have a coat, give it to him. Um, so the, the faith in, in James um, with the works in James, rather, it's a little bit different. So we see a lot of emphasis on love being the motivation for the Father's plan, um, but I think a lot of people get hung up on the works that James is describing. You know, do things for the poor, you know, or, uh, work in the safe kitchen, or, you know, things like that. Um, and I don't necessarily want to muddy the water or contaminate um, the motive for God's plan by saying that we do those things as an, with an ulterior motive. You know, we, we feed the poor just so that we can have a chance to talk to them and teach them about Christ. So where do we make that distinction? Where do things come into play? How do we... Live, how do we live a life worthy of the calling that we have received when there is the whole spectrum of um, works that are presented in the New Testament? Well, um, wow, you said a lot. I could, could, there's a lot of thoughts I had along the way. <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll try to focus on your last thought. And, and really, it's not a question, it's just more thinking through how we live the Christian life and what is the proper motivation uh, to, to as, as we do, right? Because it's, there's a lot of things. Obviously, we talked about love, which you've mentioned, as the motivating factor. Now, of course, if we're doing things the right way, then love uh, will be the motivating factor. And then we should know that love... Uh, increases. It's not like, oh, once you get love, you got it, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. I got love now. <laughs> well, love matures as well. Just like your, when we talk about spiritual growth, and your spiritual growth means you, you could be learning more wisdom and knowledge, 
the same token, that also inspires your motivation to continue to grow, right? So your, your motivation will be stronger and stronger, and, and that motivation is called love. And it's for your devotion, your commitment to, to the Father's plan, uh, your obedience, right? how diligent you are in seeking Him, your humility. All of those are factors in love. Uh, you're, you're trusting God with your life. And, and so you have to have some sort of motivation in order to do that. Uh, nobody, liter nobody just trusts God and says, okay, God, I'm trusting you. Well, why? <laughs> you, got, you got your own life to live and, and you can choose to live your life. So why would you trust God with it? That's one way you can think about it. But then when we look at James, even though James may not use love, because we're, we're talking about different writers. Uh, so James's thing, may, he, he may see things a little different than, not see things so much different, but more so describe them in different ways and using different metaphors. So James talks about faith. So if we, we think about what he's saying here, if a man says he has faith, right? And I know we've covered these scriptures and faith without works is dead. And I don't, unless you want to, I don't think we need to go over these, what that means. But No, I wasn't looking to I, I regurgitate that. I didn't think you were, right? So, But what we can think about is that the motivation of a person who... Uh, has faith. Now, what does it mean to have faith? Because he's approaching this from a different angle, let's say, than Paul was. So a person who has faith, what, what is faith? What does he mean by faith? Does it just mean believe? Uh, or faith has different ways of understanding uh, its meaning. So, so we, we could talk about the objective, uh, the active use of faith, which is simply believing the objective use of faith uh, in terms of what is believed or like the body the body of truth is likened to faith. Earnestly contend for the faith. Well, what, what's that? It's the body of truth that we have as believers, right? The foundation of truth. So we ought to fight for that. So faith in James's understanding has to do with a person who understands the Christian way of life. Somebody who has... Uh, doctrine, Bible doctrine in his soul. Right? So a person might claim to have this, but it doesn't mean they do. So James is saying a lot of people are walking around saying that they might have faith, and uh, really that doesn't mean anything. That's just a lot of talk. James is saying, show me your actions, by, and that will tell me what your motivation is. So his, his is, like you said, very practical in the way he thinks about it. If you claim or boast that you're something, let's say you boast that you're mature or you have a lot of, 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 of the teaching of God, you're a mature Christian. But yet, at the same time, there are simple things in the Christian life that you fail at doing that you know better. Right? So you know these things, but yet, there's something wrong. So James is saying, if we reverse this whole thing, the person who claims to have faith may not have faith at all. 
especially if he doesn't see these clear things in in the scriptures that he is is encouraged to do but refuses to do them and so one of the first things about um, like what we studied in John 15 is love and there was first how Christ is saying the father I love the father and then we saw in John 15 how Jesus was abiding in the father's love and keeping the father's words and and how the father loved Jesus and and then he turned it to how we ought to love the plan and Jesus and then how Jesus loves us and then how we ought to love one another so we studied all that so that we could understand what was going on and how it works and that the love was the key ingredient in all of it so yes we're to love one another and that love one another means that we should be devoted to one another we should prefer one another we should uh, you know care about each other as one body and you know this because we you know here is another brother or sister and we have that verse in John, which also says uh, the same thing. I believe it's 1 John chapter 5, which talks about everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So these are just basic principles in the Christian way of life. How can you hate your brother? Right? When, and say you love God. So, you, so the, James is saying that these people allegedly are walking around saying they got all this faith. However, their works don't show it. James even makes some stark statements that just literally, I'll just read one where he says, uh, let's just put our cards on the table here. He says, you foolish person, this is verse 20, do you, believe, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? I'm sorry, verse, verse 20 of chapter 2? 2.20, yes. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then he goes, oh, that's not the scripture I wanted to say. Uh, hold on. Okay, yeah. He says, at verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. So James is saying, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. See, so when he says, show me your faith without deeds, so, so that's the person who is alleging that he has faith. And faith is what? Not just simply believing in Christ. That's not, we're not talking about salvation. But we're talking about believers who are growing. And this person is saying, I have faith, which means I, I'm aware of the Christian way of life. But he doesn't have any deeds to support or to uh, as evidence of that faith. And I will show you my, my faith by my deeds, which means I'm going to not worry about saying I have faith. I'm just going to do the deeds, and you'll see that I have faith. Now, which, one, which way should we, we should, should we conduct ourselves? Should we go around telling people that we have a lot of faith, or should we just go ahead and do what we should, what we uh, are motivated to do by that faith. Uh, I think it's James is clear in what he's saying. So that's one of the things when you learn God's truth. There are two factors here. One is uh, you come to know a different perspective. 
truth changes us. It changes our perspective. It changes our norms and standards. It helps us see what we could not see. It helps us understand who God is, uh, whereas we uh, could never understand that. So it changes us. You don't believe something without any change. Now, even though we, we, we're talking principles, and sometimes you, you, you might believe things and you don't see a change. But really, there's a change. Every time you put your faith, you trust in the Word of God, and it becomes a part of you, it changes you. Some of the changes are not able to be seen in terms of, oh, I just believe that Christ died for all sins. So now, where's the action? Well, the action is going to be evident, but that is more of a building block of truth. Some of the truths that we are asked to believe are truths that are uh, essential building blocks for how we conduct our lives and how we uh, have our outlook about the spiritual life. So God is building things in you. At the same time, he's all asking you to just put your trust in, in him. He's taking you somewhere. This all does have meaning. So I think that's where James is coming from. He's teaching it from a different perspective than Paul or John. And it's a lot of it is probably related to things that he is literally seeing in the church and he wants to call out and which is good i mean we this is part of what we have as the canon of scripture maybe we don't see any any uh instances of people like this but i think we do i think we kind of (laughs) know i at least i have i have seen this personally where people do behave this way so it is very appropriate for me to see it. Uh, I'll pause to see if others have comments. Yeah, I've seen um, a problem with this as well, and I think that same problem existed in the Corinthian church, um, where there, there people are you know, not only saying they have faith, they're doing work, but they're boasting about how their works are better. Yes. Than the works of others. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to, you know, humility really has to be the underlying blanket in all of this. So, um, you know, humility you wouldn't, that wouldn't be your, um, that wouldn't be your condition or your um, disposition if you were going around saying that you were saved and you were a Christian, that's not, that's not being humble. Same thing with work. If you're doing work, don't go around boasting about the works that you do. That's um, right. There's, there's no reason for that. Yeah. Um, so if the works are done in humility, um, you know, with a sincere heart, um, just as we see God giving instruction about giving, uh, that God loves the cheerful giver. You know, don't go around, you know, saying what you're doing um, and let it, let it be a, a condition of your heart. Right. And, and remember who we're giving to, right? We're, we're not giving to make an impression like Ananias and Sapphira mm-hmm. who 
try to give so that people would see them and maybe they would get leadership positions and prestige in the church. Well, you know, they, they were saying they gave X amount of dollars when they really didn't. Uh, all of that has to do with that thought is that we don't give, we're not giving as unto men, we're giving unto God. In other words, he's the, he's the one who sees us and rewards us, not people. You know, we don't want to give so that people look at what we gave and, and then give, a, give us a reward of, uh, you know, maybe give us a better status. Maybe <laughs> churches today, you know, you get your name on one of the pews or something. Uh, you know, they got all kind of ways of saying, hey, this, is, this person gave money, you know. So basically, the person who has the most money or gives the most money is the one who's most spiritual. That, that's not the case. Uh, you know, that's all you got to do is pay. And then God says, oh, wow, this person paid a lot. I respect him. Not at all. Not at all. So w what we want to do is understand the uh, injunctions to humility, to just a genuine desire of a person's heart to want to know God, to want to, to understand God, to, to know his love and his plan and just a, a diligence in seeking him and wanting him. So, so if you have that, uh, and then it, it, it has to come because God, only way God's going to do it is through humility and your honesty, not your manipulation. You're not trying to get this information so that you can use it against him or, or you can control people or manipulate them to give you money or something. This is pure motive of, I want it, like Paul says, that I may know him. That pure motive is what should drive our humility. Now, a lot of people don't have that. They may, you know, especially when I think about um, even among pastors, it's almost shameful. Uh, some of them talk about how many they baptized and they boast about. Well, this was going on in the early scriptures, right? In 1 Corinthians, right? So it's not uh, uncommon, even in biblical times, that people were doing the wrong things. So because of the wrong things being done, God had to set the record straight. And he does. We see scriptures that talk about uh, the proper motive in giving, proper motive in doing works. Right? The spirit of truth takes a hold of that humility and it's a perfect match where we desire to know God and, and, to, and have this pure motive of coming to the knowledge of the truth. And, and the Holy, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth is right there with everything we need. He has the mind of Christ, which is the complete eternal purpose of God. He has the very best intentions, and he's the one leading us and guiding us. So uh, I think... God has thought about everything and every problem. And ultimately, what we fail at, we have to take the responsibility uh, because God is right there, uh, fully equipped to give us whatever we, you know, we need to fulfill his purposes. So um, I'll pause. Can you hear me? 
Yes, I can. Okay, I'm speaking to the car phone. That's why I wanted you to hear me. That reminds me of a time, a long time ago, not that long ago. I was in a restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. And I was telling, I was telling someone that most of the people in here are dead. There's a lot of dead people up in here. Mm-hmm. And this scared her. She, she, she still talks about it today. Didn't understand what I meant, really, when I said a lot of dead people up in here. And... Can you elaborate on what we mean when we say people are dead? Do you mean, you sure you weren't at a funeral parlor or something? <laughs> yeah, it looked like one, but I don't <laughs> think I was. Well, uh, I guess I guess what you were saying is you were, you were estimating that some a lot of people in there were spiritually dead. Is that what you were saying? Did I lose it? No, I, 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 I. Hopefully, you didn't lose me. I'm, I'm trying. I'm thinking okay. about your, your question or your comment. So I guess I was trying to explain the fact that unsaved people are virtually dead. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, especially, I mean, Jesus said, even with salvation, few there be that find it. Uh, so, yeah, if, if, we, if we think about the masses that are out there, then yes, that is the case. Could you hear me? I'm having trouble hearing over the car noise. Um, so, Bill, after you ask your question, put your phone on mute so I can hear. I'll put it back on mute. Yeah, so we're all, all of, we, just, we should just say, it, all of us are born dead to God. And, and when it says Ephesians 2 is a good scripture to think about, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is Ephesians 2.1. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, <clears throat> we were by nature deserving wrath. And that's what everybody is born into. There's no exceptions to this. Um, doesn't matter about race, how much money you got in the bank. Doesn't matter any of those things. You were born in this state. So, you know, when we think about how many people are dead, I think our thought should be, what can we do as those who are alive to be ambassadors, to lead them to Christ? Right, to figure out... Now, you can't just set up a, you know, a bullhorn and, and try to lead them to Christ. I mean, you have to be wise as a serpent. as Wise as a serpent, that doesn't sound right. But yeah, that's what Jesus said. Harmless as a dove. So you don't, our objective is not to hurt them or to uh, embarrass them. Our objective is to, uh, to teach them the way uh, so that they can come to Christ. And yes, <laughs> probably 
a lot, you know, I think I had this feeling or this thought. Uh, I don't know if Fred is on the call, but one time we were, he took me to, we were in Florida. He took me to a, a basketball game. I'm on the call. Oh, hey. Hey, Fred. So, yeah, he took me to a basketball game in Florida. And we were sitting there. Uh, I, of course, we didn't have uh, courtside seats. <laughs> so, whatever, wherever we could get in, I, I, it was up there a little bit. But as we were looking around the arena, you know, the, I, I, I had that same thought. And I, I kind of felt like a little sad uh, that here are all these people. And I said, I wonder how many people in here have eternal life. I don't know if Fred remembers that, but I think I shared that with you. But that's what, what I was thinking as I looked at all these crowd, this crowds of people just in this arena watching the ball game, which I was one of them. But what was on my mind was how many of these people have eternal life? How many of these people are saved? And, and knowing that salvation is absolutely free. And it costs to get into that game, but salvation is free. I don't know if Fred remembers that, but but yeah. So I see the uh, I see the the understanding, Bill. Other thoughts? All right. I hope, hope I didn't lose everybody. <laughs> Ray, I'm still here. Do you uh, want to move on to Romans or yeah. anybody else has anything? Go ahead. Any follow-ups? Any thoughts before we move into Romans? All right. If not, we're going into Romans. Romans chapter 9 is where we are. So let's uh, let's read until we get to where we left off. So Romans 9, 1, I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though the God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not because, nor because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children of by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated at the appointed time. I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, 
she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So hopefully that's where we are. I just wanted to read it so we can continue thinking about the context and how important it is. But in your notes, we have these words. We now come to a turning point in our chapter. God is going to explain some things that we could never otherwise deduce. We can see God's heavy-handed choices in forming the nation Israel, and we can begin to see God's reasoning. Israel is a miraculous nation and born with God's sovereignty and his power. For this reason, we can, we can say there never was nor ever will be another nation like Israel, God's unique creation. So I say never will be because Israel still is got the apple of God's eye in terms of a nation. And never will be another nation like Israel. There never was and there never will be. Israel is unique in that regard. If a nation just says, hey, well, we're doing the things Israel did, so we, we're, we're Israel now. You can't do that. Look at how uh, heavy-handed, I'll use that term, God was in the creation of that nation. Do you think he could just frivolously just say, okay, uh, Israel's not a nation, but I'll just choose another one? No, that's not it at all. It's Israel that is his special nation, and he specifically chose each building block of it. So here we are in these two verses now. Let's see if we can deal with it. Hopefully the context ring, is ringing in your, in your mind. So let's look at the first phrase. For he says to Moses. So first thought is God has been making choices and providing miracles to form the nation Israel. In doing this, is God unjust? No. We, could, we said that last time. But when he said no, he continues with his defense of his position. And that is what the context is. He's not just going to what Moses said because he likes Moses. He's not going to Moses because Moses uh, d doesn't have something to say that's relevant to what we're talking about. <laughs> he's going to Moses because he's going to use what Moses said to help you understand why he's not unjust in choosing the nation Israel the way he has. And he, he's going to get to it. So let's let him, let him speak. Right? Point B. Paul takes us back to a quote from the Old Testament to help us in our context of Romans 9. So that's literally what I said. And so let's read the context of Exodus 33, 18 and 19. Uh, so we'll, we'll just quickly read that, try to understand what's happening there. You might say it's a little bit obscure, but let's see. So 33, 18 and 19 says, now I, I, we could have picked up earlier where Mo, Moses is going back and forth asking questions of God. God, you, you sure you're going to be with me now? 
I got these people that are, you know, I'm trying to leave, but they don't think uh, that you're with me. They think I'm just arrogant and they, that I'm telling them things that you, your, your presence, I need your presence with me to go with me, right? So after God told Moses, look, Moses, I, I'm going to be with you. Don't worry. Yeah, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but um, he, he, he says, I'm going to do that. I, that is my point because I want to, I want to lead these people. Uh, but then, so Moses kind of feels like satisfied that God is going to be with him. So he asks, he now asks this question of God. So, and this is in verse 18. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. So <laughs> that's a tough question uh, for Moses to ask, right? Listen, I, I said it was tough. We don't know it's tough just by him asking the question, but let's see what God's response is. In verse 19, he says, And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, uh, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, uh, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So, but in the next verses, he just tells them how he's going to do it. Uh, you know, he's, you can't look at my face and live. He says, you, you're gonna, I'm going to put you in the, in, in, in the cleft of a rock and where you know, my glory passes by, you won't see my face, but you will see me as I depart in the back. <laughs> you know, when I think about, I shouldn't, this is my horrible sense of humor. It's like when you see somebody in the hospital gown and they're walking and the gown is in, you know, fine in the front, but boy, don't turn around because the back is exposed. Anyway, that's not this. Okay, let's clear your mind of those things. Anyway, uh, so so when my glory passes by, you'll be in the cleft of the rock, he says, and, you know, he will he will cover so that Moses won't see his face, right? So anyway, we got some verses ahead of us and some explaining to do here. So we need to get to it. So let's keep going. So just keep in mind at this point, for he says to, to Moses, this phrase, just keep in mind, he takes us back here for a reason. We're going to try to get to why he took us back and understand it. So that goes along with point C in our notes for, and that's the post-particle conjunction gar, what they call gar in the Greek. And and this is what it means. It's properly assigning a reason uh, used in argument and explanation or intensification. It's often used with other particles as well. So when Paul says this, he's explaining something, right? He's trying to bring uh, a reason for, you know, why, you know, why he did, why he is saying he is not unjust, in his choices in Israel, in the formation of Israel. He's trying to help us understand that. So, so I'm just, you might say, well, oh, that's a little picky. It just says for. Well, for means for this reason, right? So it means because of this. Uh, so it, you, it, it is, it goes right along with the context. And I want you to see the integration of what Paul is saying here. Uh, 
because right after the verse where he talked about um, he chose Jacob over Esau, even though Esau um, typically should have the birthright, God says, no, not in this case. And remember, they were twins, probably born minutes apart. And God, his choice trumps, he's saying, I have the right to choose who I want for my nation. You know, not that he didn't bless Esau, he did, but he chose Jacob to be um, the progenitor of Israel. It's God's choice, and he's defending his choice. And not only his choice to choose Jacob, but his choice to choose Abraham, his choice to choose Isaac as well. So we had all of that in the context. So God is defending his right to choose here. And that's where we get the post, the, the, the conjunction, the particle uh, there for Gar. So point number two. So for he says to Moses, we already covered that. Point two, I will ha- this is what he says to Moses. This is in Romans 9. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So let's dig into this phrase. What's the significance? What is the significance of God giving this answer to Moses? This is the question I have. What's the sig- Why would God say this in response to, Mo- you know, to Moses? We need to talk about two aspects of this. And one, point A and B covers it. Right, point A covers what's the significance uh, of him answering Moses. Point B is what is the significance in giving this answer to Paul in our context. So we need to see it from both perspectives. Right? Why did why did he give it? Why did Paul allude to it? So point A uh, is that. So the first point in point A is what's the significance God giving this answer to Moses? God sees this request as harmful to Moses. And uh, one, it was in response to Moses asking to see God's glory. So if we're looking at the context of Exodus 33, 18 and 19, God gives this answer in response to Moses asking to see God's glory. So... uh, that you could say uh, that is a question that should have uh, that Moses. You could say, "What well, did should Moses have asked that question?" I mean, because God gives it. It's kind of a an answer that God is literally saying, "I could, I could do what I want, right?" Well, I know you could do what you want. <laughs> You're God, but He's answering Moses when Moses is asking to see His glory. So. That's what we should know first. Point two, from from Moses' question, God must see this request as imposing on God's sovereignty. So, in God's mind, Moses' question must have crossed some line that God saw as, uh, Moses, you're trying to tell me what to do here. God is Because God has basically answered, I could do what I want to do, and I could, I could show mo- mercy or get you know to whom I want I can give compassion to whom I want so he does allow Moses to see something but not what Moses asked for so point three God revealed himself to Israel as a consuming fire dangerous to Moses is what I meant by it was it could be seen as harmful to Moses and that's what God says at the end he says I could show you this 
However, but no, I'm not going to show you this. And so, so typically what Moses was asking for from God, God said no. He did not give it to Moses. He did. So Moses wanted to see God's glory. But when we look at some of these verses, like Exodus 24, I'm going to turn to a couple. Exodus 24. Moses was asking in verse 17, it says, To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. So imagine what Moses was asking. To see God in all of his intensity, his glory. And listen, God is saying, no, Moses. And God did reveal himself to Israel in just that way. And there's another verse. There's, there's several verses, but I, took a, I just took a couple. Deuteronomy 4.24 is the other one. Deuteronomy 4 and 24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. So he's. This is something. This consuming fire that God revealed Himself. Uh, he, well, really, He manifested Himself this way to Israel as a consuming fire, like this burning fire, this intense burning fire. And so, for you to look at the manifestation that God had to Israel would be harmful to you. But just think about this for a second. Because literally, God does not manifest that way to us in church. When we look at God, he's not a consuming fire. We can see God through the image of the invisible God, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And for us, God is not a consuming fire. And and in fact... He has shown everything to us. He has shown us his heart. So while he told Moses, no, I'm not going to show you this, but I, here's what I will show you. And he allowed him the intensity of who he was to pass by. And Moses only got to see God from the back as he was passing over. And this is, again, not who God is. God is not... Uh, can, cannot be confined to like one space and time. But God's manifestation of who he is or his glory can be manifest in one place at one time. So that's what was happening for the nation Israel. When they looked up at the mountain, that's where they saw the glory, the smoke, and the consuming fire of who, that's how is, the God of Israel um, revealed himself. And he gave him the name Jehovah. Or Yahweh said, this is who I am. Moses said, show me your glory. Show me straight up. So what Moses was asking, God said no. And he uh, he declined that. But guess what? We have the very heart of who God is. And the glory we will share. We will emanate that glory that Moses was asking God to show him. Which, what a question. That is a deep question from Moses to ask. Show me your glory. You know, that's the question we should be asking, right? Because we have the the proximity to, to who God is to see his glory through the image of the invisible God. 
literally it says in Hebrews, I'm just going to read it. I know we're leaving the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That would be talking about Moses as well. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And here it is right here. Verse 3, the son is the radiance of God's glory. See, that's exactly what Moses was asking. So he, he was saying, God, sh can, can you show me your glory? Unfettered, unrestrained, not diluted, straight. And God said, no, I, I can't do that, Moses. But here, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty in heaven. And that's where Christ is right now. And guess who's in him? We are. We're in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms. So this is, I just want to make sure we understood what, Paul, what Moses was asking. And, and God's answer to Moses was, no, Moses, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So we may not understand that answer fully, what God means, but God is literally saying, no, Moses, it is for whom I choose to reveal myself. And, I, and when he's saying I will have mercy, I will have compassion, he's saying it's who I want to choose. It's up to me. And by me choosing them, I am having mercy, I'm having compassion. I am not obligated to to have mercy. I'm not obligating myself to have compassion. It is my choice. I can do what I want. That's what he's saying. Point B. What is the significance of God giving this answer to Paul in our context? Well, point one, since God gives this answer to show he is not unjust informing the nation Israel. Remember, this answer is part of him defending his sovereignty by saying, is it wrong that I chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is it wrong? And, and the answer he's given is, no way, that's not unjust. And then he goes right to this. Well, just like with Moses, right? He's given more reasoning for us to understand why he's not unjust in this. So since that's why I said since God gives this answer, he is not unjust. He's given it to show he is not unjust in his forming of the nation Israel. Then Israel is imposing on the sovereignty of God. Yeah, that's what those questions for Israel from Israel are doing. They are literally imposing on God. They're asking God, hey God, is it unfair what you're doing? But God is saying, you, you're crossing the line here, Israel. You can't. You, you're, you're crossing into areas that you don't have any business in. This is not your business to cross this line. It's my business. That's what God is doing by answering this question in this way. 
Point number two. By challenging the church's election, Israel is questioning God's choices. That's what they're doing without knowing his plan, right? So in other words, God comes up with a new plan. He stops Israel. Right? He, he suspends, let's say he suspends Israel. That's a better way to say it. Because suspending means he's going to start back up again. So he suspends Israel. And what do we call this time, this time where we're, Israel is suspended? The mystery. This age that was hidden. Uh, that was destined before our, for our glory before time began. This age is now, the age we're living in, began with the uh, Pentecost, the introduction of God the Holy Spirit. It will end with the Spirit leaving and the church also leaving with uh, what we, which, it, in which we also call the rapture of the church, the catching away of the church. So that's funny because a lot of people say, where do you get this rapture theory from? There's no rapture. There's, we're not raptured. Right. So actually, if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that's what the word means, caught up. We'll be caught up together to meet him. That's, that's what we, it literally right there, but people would say, well, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. No, it's not. But caught up is. <laughs> so just so you didn't know, right? Anyway, Anyway, so it says, in, I'm in point B, uh, B2, I'm distracted here. So without knowing his plan, they didn't know that there would be a mystery because it was hidden from Israel. So in one way, we could understand why they would say what, what they said. I can understand it. But you know what? It, were it not for the fact that God demonstrated his will through signs, wonders, and miracles. He showed which way he wanted to go through his own power. And Israel ignored it. I mean, just imagine, Israel was brought about or born through miraculous signs, wonders, and miracles and God's sovereign choice. And now that God brought the church the same way, Israel rejects it. They ignore that God's stamp is all over the church. And they say, well, no, we, we will not accept that. So like I said, God suspended uh, the plan that Israel had and will resume it later. So they, they, uh, they didn't know that there would be a plan. So we, we can understand that. But when God showed it, well, now they're responsible to follow God. And after hearing it, when hearing the plan, guess what they did? They rejected it. They rejected it. We're going to read Romans 8, 29 through 31 just to understand that. Romans 8, 29 to 31. Stand by. Let me get there. So this is what's interesting about it. Literally, 29 talks about the calling, right, that we have. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's the call. We use the words, same words for Israel, but now we're using these words for the church. We went through this. So literally, that's what he's talking about. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So the very next verse, just think about this in the context. The very next verse says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, 
who can be against us? So what do you mean, what should we say in response to these things? Right? This is literally God is following up with what people might think. What will people respond to God's calling the church? Well, one thing we should know, whatever they say about this, and for God to answer it by this, if God is for us, who can be against us, is to say that some people can be against us. Some people would be against us. And we know who that is. It's Israel. They they don't like the verses I just quoted. That's literally their problem. So then it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And that's what we have, literally, in this age. This is what God called us to. So then he continues with the accusations. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? In other words, who would do such a thing? Why would Paul even ask this question? Because he's already anticipating the mind of the Jew, of which he had. So he knows how they think. He's saying, let me lay this question out here and let me answer it because it's pertinent. God wants to minister to the Jew to help them understand through uh, the changes that are that are happening. These are drastic changes, right? God's suspending Israel uh, until the church age is, is done and he calls out many sons in the glory and then he will resume with Israel. They need to know how that works. So then he says in verse 34, who then is the one that can, who condemns? And he's given answers to all of these. But I'm pointing out these scriptures because of the questions that are, uh, are being addressed even now. So 9.6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. See, so in other words, this is how the Jews thought. He, he, you know, they had this prestigious history and pedigree. And for them, they thought everything was just going to continue the way they understood. But God threw a change in things when he came out with the mystery, which was hidden from them. Instead of them uh, accepting the, the, the mystery on its, the merits of it, just as it is, like we have, they said, no, 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 we can't do that. So I'm just helping us. To, and even in 11, Romans 11, 1 and 2, we still see it. I ask then, did God reject his people? All right, so there, Israel, there's the question, right? Paul is, he's answering this question because he's trying to help people orient to the mystery. Right, so people will know what the plan of God is right now, how he could set aside Israel suspend Israel, and now he can have uh, and deal with the church and, and you know, fulfill his eternal purpose. Israel doesn't understand that. And Paul says, by no means. Right? God, this is not unjust. God did not reject his people. But no, that's the subject. That's important for you to understand. That's background information that you need. Point number three. God is saying that having mercy, now here's the where he's using these words. He's saying that having mercy and compassion refers to those whom he has chosen. Right? So God has chosen certain ones to have, and he's saying have mercy and compassion. Really, he's talking about choosing people. 
and the choosing of these people uh, are very special to God and his plan. Now Moses, he said, no, Moses, I'm not, and, and obviously God has chosen Israel, but for a different purpose. He did not choose Israel so that Israel will be face to face with his glory like we are. Israel didn't even know that was possible. Right, so now we, what we have is the fulfillment of what Moses' question was in Christ. So in the same way, his, uh, right, his loving Christ and us in Christ say that God has chosen us to be in his eternal purpose. That's what having mercy and having compassion. And even Israel, God had mercy on them by revealing his purpose for them in this world. Israel is a part of God's eternal purpose. It's not just the mystery, right? Because it's, it's the whole plan of God. It's just that now, the church, God is revealing this part of his plan, which is the climax, the crux of his, etern his, his whole eternal purpose. It's this age right now. This is what God did all this work to get to this age. And here we are right now in this particular age. So he's chosen us in him before the creation of the world. So this is point number three we're in. He's having mercy and compassion. It refers to that. It's just like when, when it says that he loved Christ right before the creation of the world. What do we mean by he loved Christ before the creation of the world? Well, that language is to say that he chose Christ. How does Christ respond to the call that God had for him before the creation of the world? Well, Christ shows up in the world and he says, I love the Father. Well, what does that mean? It means I want to do exactly as the Father has commanded me. That means he understands what the call of the Father was and he's going to act accordingly. He's going to do exactly what the Father wants him to do. Okay, so that's what it means when God says, he has having mercy and compassion. I can have it. I can have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. And I can have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Right. So that is literally what God is saying in that point number four. So this is this does not refer to salvation. We should make sure we understand that. It's but God sovereignly choosing certain ones from Jews and Gentiles to be in Christ before the creation of the world. That's Ephesians 1.4. That's what he chose for us. For he chose all of that, when we talk about foreknowledge, predestination, calling, all that, that's before time began. That's before God created anything. So the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as far as we know, were sitting around. We say sitting around. They were there in the planning of what God wanted out of creation. This is what he wanted out of creation. We call it the Father's plan. Each one of the members of the Trinity had a role, a purpose. The Father is the one who said to have planned it. The Son is the one who is, has, has executed. All of this is executed through the works of the Son. And then we have the Holy Spirit who comes not only to empower us to be united to the person of Christ, but to illuminate all those who are in the world regarding the Father's eternal purpose. So it, 
at whatever stage it was in, whether it was early in the stage before the mystery was revealed or it's after uh, to people who are not part of the mystery but still part of Israel or Gentiles, they will know who we are. And the Holy Spirit's job is to make that known. Even to, as, as through, through the church, uh, angelic creatures, this information is being made known as well. So that's point four. It does not refer to salvation. We should know it is it's not about salvation. It's about God's forming of the nation Israel. And our calling is not about salvation. It is about God calling out those many sons in the glory. So let's continue. Point number three. So, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the first point is, so then, it means, this is what Strong says it means, certainly. <laughs> In other words, okay, I told you that I could do what I want. So, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion. Right? You should know it's not on their responsibility, it's me, but on God who has mercy. You can't enter into uh, somehow entitling yourself to some mercy. It doesn't work that way. Like right now, you're in the church, right? For, but don't, God chose us in him before the creation of the world. You didn't have anything to do with that. You weren't even there. God didn't ask you if you wanted to be part of the church. He chose you to be part of the church. That is your vocation. That's what God called you to. It's not talking about your salvation. It's talking about your vocation. So point B. So then, what? When it says so then, what? God's choices are his to make, and we are imposing on his person when we challenge his choices. And God is responsible here. So when we ask God certain questions, God is not saying, you don't have the right to ask me those questions. Now later on, he's going to get into how arrogant that thought is from Israel. He's going to get into it. But by him answering these questions, it, God is not saying that we can't ask or wonder about it. He leaves, he puts it on the table. So that means this is for us to examine. It's okay to ask the questions, but just know that these questions intrude on God's sovereignty. Okay, just, just know that. And, and for God to respond in the way he has talking about he can do what he wants, says that we cross the line. When I say we, I really mean Israel has crossed the line and raising this line of questioning. Point C. So it, it does not depend, depends not on human will or exertion. So Israel thought it was their works and their determination to keep the law that entitled them and made them special. That's what they thought. They really did. They had those two problems. One, they objected to the, to the calling of the church. And two, they thought that they were entitled. You know, that God did not have any choices. He had to do what uh, Israel thought he had to do. Israel didn't even understand salvation. When I say Israel, I mean a lot of people in Israel. The majority of people in Israel didn't understand salvation because they were teaching that you had to keep the law in order to be saved. So Romans 3, 19 and 20 is clear. 
So this was, it says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So the law was not to give, given to, to the Jews so that they were entitled, that they were better. They were not better. They were, everybody was under sin. Verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. They thought they could be righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. So for Paul to make this declaration, that no, first of all, that was never true and it's not true now. It's, it's rather through the law we become conscious of sin. That's why in 2 Corinthians 3, it talks about the law as the minister of death, of the minister of condemnation. So what are those two things exemplifying? The bad news. Death, right? We're all born dead. We're all born condemned, right? This is... This is the truth. This is the bad news for all mankind. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. So Jews didn't understand that. So they missed when it came to, they swung and missed, as we would say in baseball. Point D, this is opposite of salvation, right? So when it says it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now salvation doesn't have any works involved. But it does have our will, right? So John 3.18, let's read quickly. So our time is leaving us. So John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. So it takes your will to believe. But whoever does not believe, notice the onus, the responsibility is on the person to believe or not to believe. I don't think Shakespeare said that, but said something like that. To believe or not to believe. Because that's, that's the responsibility that we have as it is with reference to the gospel, to who Christ is. We stand condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only, only begotten Son of God. And you stand condemned because you are already condemned. You just are not, you continue in the same condemnation. So, so that, and then... So Revelation 22, and and there was John 3.36, I know. But Revelation 22, I want to read this one quickly. Verse uh, 17 says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Now watch this. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes or wills. Who wants, one who wants, who it is our will, take the free gift of the water of life. So this is, we have a will and salvation. God could say, well, I'm saving who I want to save and don't tell me otherwise. Then we don't have any will. It's it's nothing. I'm not saying it's our exertion. In other words, remember, exertion is used because Israel thought that their keeping the law merited them salvation. But I'm saying that salvation does have uh, our will involved. You don't, you're not saved apart from your will. When you hear the gospel, you have a choice to make. And that choice is your responsibility to make. You have a will in this. So salvation is the opposite. This is God's call. It does not depend on human will. God did not ask you, which one, what choice would you like to have? He did not ask you, what age would you like to be born in? It's not according to your will. 
or exertion, in other words, the Jews keeping the law. But it has to do with God showing mercy or has mercy. And that means it's just God's own sovereign choice. Now, before we go on, you could say, we, and I have said before, that there is no scripture that says literally why God chose us in him before the creation of the world. There is no scripture. But this, at least since the question has been probed because, because of Israel, God is saying, he's telling you in no uncertain terms that I get to choose who I want. And the way he says it is just like I told Moses. I am the one who has mercy or compassion. And having mercy or compassion is God saying, I will reveal myself to whomever I want, when I want, and to whom I want. I might have said that twice. But that is literally what he's saying. He says, I could, don't tell me. I can, it's my choice. And he does have a choice to reveal exactly what Moses' question was. So that's something we should understand. Okay, point that was point D. Point E, those who cannot see God's plan beyond salvation. And this is the problem for a lot of people. They can't see God's plan of salvation. Uh, or, or God's plan beyond salvation. In other words, the whole goal in life is for them to be saved. If they could just eke salvation out of this life, they will do everything they can. They will be good. They will, even when, when they're bad, they will try to make up for it. They will atone. They will sin. They will be sorry. All that, they just want to be saved. They just hope that they will do enough good that God will say at the end, I'm going to usher you right on in here because, yes, you have done well. I see your heart. But God, that is not how salvation works. Salvation is free. And so it's free. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is hear the word, the gospel of your salvation and believe. That's it. There's no work. There's trust in another. That's Christ. He did all the work necessary for salvation. Not you. All you do is put your trust in him. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. It's a gift of God. So if you can't see that that's free, and it's and you can receive it just by. And once you receive it, you have it forever. There's no, okay. Let me see if you're gonna do work. So then, if you do, I'll let you keep it. If you don't, I'll take it away. That's the same thing as you need works to get it, right? It's the same thing ultimately. So no matter what you say, you there's no smoke and mirrors here. Either you have it or you don't. If you do have it, you're gonna have it forever. It's forever life. It's eternal. So, people can't see beyond salvation. So, every scripture that may be a scripture relating to God's eternal purpose, like this one, they will have to somehow twist into some salvation construct. Because they can't see anything else. That's it. There is no greater purpose that God has other than to save us. That's it. As far as they can see, salvation is it. We, there is no... Uh, eternal purpose. There is no mystery. What are you talking about? It's just God saving us. It's how glorious it is, no matter what is said. And there are some lofty things said about us 
that they have to somehow twist into a salvation construct. So that's the God's eternal purpose. Ephesians 3, 8 through 11, I don't know how you can read those verses and think that they refer to salvation. You read them for yourself, but I don't know how you could. They're just dripping with God's eternal purpose. It even uses the term eternal purpose. Wow. Point F. We're moving forward and we're going to end after we finish this. But on God who has mercy. So it, 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 there, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's the phrase in point F I'm trying to focus on. So again, having mercy means that God has elected certain individuals to be united to Christ. That's the mystery. That's us. Right? It, and, and even it was Israel because God called them, but he called them for a special purpose. Right? This, he called them as a nation. For us, he called us to be united to the person of Christ. We didn't choose that. It was God showing mercy. It was God having compassion. We, it was, we didn't choose it. So that's what I say. We did not choose this for ourselves. In fact, our salvation didn't choose this for us either. Right? So lots of people have salvation, but not everyone is in Christ. So people of all ages, if we look at, there's people who were saved in the antediluvian world. There are people who were saved in the age where there was just Gentiles before God formed his nation Israel. There were believers apart from the nation Israel. And all these believers, even in the nation Israel, are none of them are in Christ. But we are. And God crafted not only us, but he said this was a mystery age. This age, that this particular age that we're in was hidden. So God chose us to be here in this particular age. And that's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man any person is in Christ. He is a new creation. That's not for everybody. Not everybody is in Christ. Just us who are in this particular age. So that's and so it doesn't have to do with salvation. It has to do with God's particular call. Yeah. Yeah, we're saved, absolutely. But God is the one who chose us to be here so that we could be recipients of this matchless grace. Point G, and we're closing. God is literally saying here, literally, I can do what I want. How do you feel about that is the question. Now, for me, I'm going to tell you how I feel. You get to answer that question for yourself. But for me, I'm fine with God doing whatever he wants, because I know he, whatever he does is righteous. He's a good God. I have seen that of him. Even in his administering salvation and all the things we know about him, we see he's a righteous God, a good God. And God can do whatever he wants. This is not maniacal or evil or manipulative. This is God at heart is good and righteous. And he can, and you know, he's brushing off Israel's attempts at saying that he committed a foul. He can do whatever he wants. He's telling Israel. He did when he formed the nation Israel. Don't you, you see that, right? Right? 
Well, I could do whatever I want. Righteously. And he does. So we're going to have to close. I know. We'll talk more next week. I guess we'll get into Pharaoh and all the rest of it. These verses are coming right at us. So stay tuned. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of what you have given us here in your word. Such transparency, such uh, forthright explanations of who you are and what you have done. Uh, no, no need to defend yourself, Father, to us. We trust you. We trust you with our lives. And uh, the fact that you even want to defend yourself is telling about who you are and the transparency, the nature of kindness and honesty that you have towards us is certainly appreciated. Even though we didn't ask, it is enriching for us to know these things. So we thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ who blazed the trail and upon whom all of these things could not have happened were it not for him. Thank you for sending him as our Lord and uniting us to him in this very special relationship that we have. So Father, these are tough words for people, for some people to hear about Romans chapter 9, maybe they have thought about it in many other ways, but Father, we're praying that you will impress upon their minds with the spirit of truth what these verses are actually saying. All of this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.